like to introduce Kenneth Gears and his presentation on Hacking in a Foreign Language, the Network Security Guide to Russia. Thank you. Take it away. Thanks. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. And I'm really into this topic. It's very, very close to my heart. Uh, I have studied and lived and worked overseas. And uh, so I'm try trying to provide a perspective on network security that will, will be a benefit to you, but hopefully also will be an angle that is that is, is really worth, worthwhile uh, for the community. Uh, in this case, uh, I know you all are in the network security field, and you may know a lot about exploits. Uh, but one of the things I want to say is that there is always a story behind the exploit. Now, whether it's uh, marital espionage, uh, nation-state espionage, uh, crime, uh, or uh, a hobby as a hacker, there, there's always a story behind it and there's a purpose to it. And the more you can understand uh, the person who might be sitting on the, the, you know, the other end of the internet connection on the keyboard, you can understand their, their, their motives, their rationale, their interests, you know, the better I think you're going to be at protecting uh, your networks. In this case, it's a sense of the, the who and the why of a network attack being essentially at least or more important as the how. So we're going to look at Russia as a case study. Uh, we're going to look at Russia as a threat. And I think it's not too difficult for me to establish uh, that Russia is a threat. There are plenty of other threats out there, but this is a case study of Russia. Uh, and so if it is such a great threat, uh, we're going to look at it as uh, also as an exploit and using Russia as a resource uh, for your own research, uh, whatever that may be. And we'll try to turn that into a method. We'll look at methodologies for approaching uh, crossing international boundaries, especially in terms of international investigations. And I think whether or not you're an investigator, that will prove beneficial uh, to you for understanding how to leave your cultural and political uh, orbit. Finally, we'll look at international law and where international investigations, international law stand uh, on the topic in particular of cross-border uh, network security issues. Russia as a threat. It, the foundation is there in Russia in terms of strong education and a strong uh, culture for understanding how to solve technical problems. During the Cold War, the 1980s, the United States, you know, via IBM and Apple, putting out software, uh, selling hardware. This was taken advantage of in the Soviet Union largely through cracking. It was not for sale in the Soviet Union. And so even if they were able to buy it, they were, you know, wouldn't have found it on the, on the shelves. 
Currently, uh, in Russia, you have the socioeconomic problem of not being able to essentially afford uh, the software and hardware. You find that there are many skilled people, relatively few jobs. Some other countries have this issue. For instance, Egypt, very strong in education, very few jobs for the graduates. And in the political uh, legal culture prevalent in Russia today, Russian police may have higher priorities. So if you and I think that purchasing windows is expensive, imagine how that feels you know, in a country where that may take two months of your salary. A big reason why the wares scene in Russia is very old and very strong. find operating systems and games and office software for sale on the street for a few dollars. And then in Russia, you have a communal sharing culture. It's not taboo for you know, political, cultural, and historical reasons to share what you have with your neighbor. Now you can imagine, especially for, for hacking and cracking of software and distribution of software, if most of that software is associated with a former political rival such as the United States or Japan, that there would be no cultural prohibition on cracking software and selling it on the street corner. So there's a strong history of uh, cybercrime, especially over the past 10 years in Russia. I'll highlight the case of Vladimir Levin, uh, who worked in St. Petersburg, but figured out a way, which he never divulged and it never came to light, to get on Citibank internal networks and transfer money. He transferred money in at least 10 foreign countries around the world, over $10 million. But cooperation in this case between U.S. law enforcement and uh, Russia telecommunications ended in an arrest. And most of the money was recovered. Some high-profile hacking cases, such as the theft of uh, Windows source code, also trace back to Russia. I like the case of Joe Lopez in Florida, a very interesting case that highlights some difficult issues for law enforcement today. Joe Lopez, his home computer was victim to the core flood virus. His financial information, to include username and passwords, was sent to Eastern Europe. 
His bank in Florida was Bank of America. So what happened was there was a legitimate connection to the Bank of America using a good username and password that only Joe Lopez should know. And the hacker had because his home computer had been vulnerable. So $90,000 were transferred from his bank account to Latvia. Now, as you can imagine, Bank of America nor the Bank of Latvia want any responsibility for this activity. So it's been impossible for Joe Lopez to recover his money. This type of activity may, in the end, in the United States, wind up in court in what we call a class action lawsuit, in which a group of people who have been subject to this type of uh, financial theft recover their money as a class or as a large group of people in a, a lawsuit, in this case, maybe uh, prosecuted versus uh, U.S. banks. I mentioned quickly Dmitry Skriarov, who uh, was at DEFCON 9, just missed being a speaker at uh, Black Hat that year. Um, I was at his talk, after which he was arrested by FBI. Now, what Dmitry did was write a program that removed copy, paste, save, send, cut features from uh, PDF files. He wound up cooperating with American law enforcement and was, was let go. What I'd like to highlight is from the perspective of international cybercrime, an exploit, especially a good one, can be translated into cash. And the statistics show this. You find international criminal groups that are hiring programmers and turning uh, it into money uh, that can be reinvested into other types of crime. The arrests have taken place but have been few in number. A good case to study occurred last year in the United Kingdom. In which online gambling organizations were subject to Eastern European uh, extortion threats.
Now, online gambling nets millions of dollars a day. So a distributed denial of service attack against an industry such as online gambling is extremely costly. So what took place was a small denial of service attack followed by a letter from the criminal group demanding payment for, say, the coming year so that denial of service attacks would cease against the company. Again, there were some arrests last year made. However, the SANS group estimates that at least 7,000 businesses on any given time are paying bribes to criminal groups for just this type of activity. Another good case from the Soviet, uh, sorry, from Russia last year uh, involved a powerful attack on Microsoft Internet Server and Internet Explorer browser. It is unknown exactly how so many IIS servers were infected. But when web surfers would visit an infected page, they would invisibly be redirected to this IP in Russia. They would download code to their computer to collect financial information. Some examples at the bottom of the slide. Now this particular case was significant enough that the U.S. government was very involved. The U.S. Computer Emergency Response Team at this time recommended that U.S. government offices not use the Internet Explorer browser. And Microsoft, for the first time, went outside of its normal patch cycle to issue patches for this attack. All these are examples of malicious code written in Russia. And they fall into every category. Antivirus killer, firewall killer, password grabber, downloader, Trojan, you name it. Now within every successful network attack lies a window of opportunity for social engineering to be successful. Now love, romance, sex are powerful social engineering attacks. In the United States, very common for men to look at services such as the Russian bride companies. 
the big problem here is that many of these women do not exist. And there are many cases from around the world of men sending money and gifts, credit card numbers to fictional girlfriends. The U.S. Embassy in Moscow gets up to 10 telephone calls every day complaining of this type of activity. And now there's an industry in Russia that will go and meet the person with whom you're corresponding to verify that they exist. So criminal activity in Russia basically can work like this. There are public web forums which invite criminals to offer their services. They go from public to closed in nature. Initially, you can get contact information and suggest what type of services you have. And then you might be invited into a closed session in which you can discuss in more specifics how the financial action can take place. In Russian, you see Ruski Urbshi Forum, so Russian Public Forum, and this is for carders, credit card numbers, some links to look at, and some types of services that you might want to sell. Now, just like in the real world, talk only goes so far. And you have to live up to being able to offer these services. And if you can, your nickname will come known, and you can start making money. If you're not legitimate, you can be banned forever from these sites. The international wars scene has a strong background in Russia. The drink or die group, a worldwide group of wares expertise, was born in Russia and went worldwide and has led at least to 15 arrests in my state of Virginia. Operation Buccaneer was an international investigation in which there were arrests made of two top individuals in the organization, one in Arizona and one in Australia. 
And when they had law enforcement had access to the servers, they could see that sophisticated computer security techniques were employed to include encryption using sophisticated proxies and hot points around the world. The people inside the group only know each other by their nickname. I'm bringing the discussion closer to my own particular interests, which are closer to the political and military use of network security attack and defense. Hacktivism lies still in the civilian world, but there could be civilian hackers or groups who attempt to make an impression on the political world. You may recall much tension between the United States and China over the downing of the EP3 surveillance plane. There was a lot of hacker activity between Chinese hackers and American hackers following that. And it's a case in which you'll see that events in cyberspace often follow events in the real world and you'll find reflections of activity in the real world on the net. In the Russian case, when NATO went into Serbia and Kosovo, Russian hackers became active against NATO, against the White House, and against the Pentagon, and against the United Kingdom uh, Department of Defense. Now, no impact was claimed as far as damaging military networks of significance. But I'll tell you, in this day and age, this type of activity has to be taken very seriously by governments. The nature of the web and of distributing information in a digital format is powerful. The pictures that were taken at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq by U.S. troops and then distributed on the web to the right websites that would be read by people you know, whose opinion around the world governments take seriously probably did more damage to the United States foreign policy in the past few years than all web defacements combined. Now there are cases of serious espionage. And in this day and age, I think we still have not caught the cyber spy. But there are examples of what we may find in the future. Robert Hansen was ideally placed within the U.S. intelligence community to spy for Russia. He was in Russian counterintelligence, and he was the head of the office. But he was also a C programmer, and he was also very network security savvy. 
he built software for the FBI. He hacked his superior's account to demonstrate, allegedly, the vulnerabilities that existed on the internal network. We'll never know everything that happened between Robert Hansen and his Russian spy masters. But some of the things he tried as early as the mid-1980s were, were posting encrypted messages on bulletin board services on the internet. So 25 years later, you can imagine the type of spy communications that are taking place. On the internal network, he was able to search for any references to investigations or suspicions of his own espionage. But this type of activity can work both ways. On his bomb pilot and on floppy disks, that investigators found were indications of his espionage and communication with the Russians. Currently, in Russia, the SVR would be the Foreign Intelligence Service, the FSB, the internal, and FAPSI is the equivalent of the American NSA. Today in information warfare, you'll find that militaries are placing a high priority on both understanding this issue and trying to protect their own systems and trying to understand how they would go about attacking their adversary systems. Something called the revolution in military affairs can be boiled down to the electronic command and control of forces and of weapon systems via networks. And I can tell you that national level leadership around the world has yet to understand this issue and its importance. I've seen a couple of references to Russia and the United States leading the way in research into this type of activity. And I know that both in the United States and in Russia, there are efforts underway to try and teach what is called the critical infrastructure sections of both the civilian and political and military network infrastructure, uh, how to try and protect their resources in the future. So we can point to some historical examples of information warfare taking place in Russia. When the Chechen conflict began, now over 10 years ago, the Chechen side was quicker to understand the powerful nature 
of putting their message out onto computer networks. They saw the value of the asymmetric nature of taking, say, digital image and giving it to the media. What they did was they showed Russian atrocities in Chechnya. They showed attacks by their own forces on Russian forces, and it was a it was a political victory of a public relations nature. A few years later, when the Russians counterattacked in cyberspace, not only had they learned this lesson and brought reporters down with them to see their side of the story, but a very interesting event occurred in which uh, somebody took down websites that belonged to the Chechen site. Now these were websites that had pro-Chechen propaganda. Now you may remember that terrorists in Moscow took a theater full of patrons hostage. At the precise moment when Russian special forces stormed the theater, several Chechen websites went off the air. And one of the interesting cases involved a website that was hosted in the United States. It was a sophisticated attack in which the domain registration was changed and information on the server was erased. So to summarize, post-Soviet Union, you find many things leaving Russia to include malicious code. And some of this code has had a worldwide impact. Part of the problem of the wares movement and the cracking and redistribution of software illegally has been that it has slowed the transformation to a legitimate market economy in Russia, which governments are starting to see in a different light. In other words, there are cascading effects that unless you crack down you know, on software piracy, the establishment of legitimate businesses is much harder. The other issue is that money gained from cybercrime can be reinvested into other types of crime that may be more difficult for the government to deal with. So let's look at Russia as a resource. If the environment in Russia is that rich for hacker and network security topics, how can we go about exploiting Russia? Very quickly, you'll see that there are plenty of Russian hacker sites where you can begin. And if you can overcome the language barrier, you'll see that they look a lot like our own sites. Here are a few links where you can begin. You'll see Cocker, which 
X-A-K-E-P transliterated would be H-A-K-E-R. So if you see that, you know what the word is. In France, they have the Académie, and in Russia, the Civil Hacker School. These are commercial ventures that teach hacking skills for profit. Now, this site is both in English and Russian, so I won't help you anymore there. Let's look at a site that's only in Russian. Here's the motto at the top of the site. Хакеры взлом защита программирования исходники харявосовки проги. So these are the various sections of the site up front where you can go. Hackers, attack, defense, programming, beginners, wares, software and programs. So there's training. There's an archive of articles, which as a researcher, it's easier than you think to use this as a resource. You just need a reliable tool to translate it for you. There are downloads. There are hacker tools, which if you use, you'll see TCPIP looks a lot in foreign languages like it does in your own language. That's a joke. You'll find the statistics. If you can read words that say most popular, well then you know, hey, this site, I can go to this page and download what Russians consider valuable information. The other day I went to Kinko's here in Tokyo and I created a word document with some difficulty, but I created the word document because I knew the icons to use. So bear in mind, there will often be graphics that will guide you through foreign language sites as well. Here's the archive of articles on the site, and you can see these are people who commented the number of times it's been read and the rating. So you can see what's highly rated versus lower rated. And then on the right side, it's email or save. So the top article says how to seize lame IRC channels. Here's some downloads. And again, here you might download programs uh, that as a coder uh, or as a network security researcher may be of value to you. So you can see Trojans. You can see Password. Scanners. Here's the top 10 downloads only one of which I found on insecure.org. Now the programs may have been renamed, but it's likely they have some tools in other countries and cultures that you don't have in yours. 
discussion forums from beginner to expert. Now what you might think, how could I possibly use a discussion forum? Bring up a couple of windows on your desktop. One is the translator, the other is the chat forum. It's not as difficult as you would think to type what you would want to say into the translation program, copy and paste it into the chat forum. There's hacker tools. What I highlight here is there's a scanner on this site, which is a Russian site. So I gave it Kremlin.ru to scan. Now the interesting thing about that is that you can use tools that exist in a foreign country to scan networks in that country and provide you potentially information that via the web, via HTTP, uh, that is a value to you uh, that you have obtained not from scanning from your own country. Here's the two administrators. So they have over 100 articles, over 100 files to download, over 200 articles, and 27 links to other sites. Let's talk a little bit about software translation because it might uh, seem a difficult task. Natural language processing is just bringing natural languages, such as Japanese and English, into software. Machine translation will translate automatically one language to the other within a program. Now, for certain fields, such as network security, you'll find that machine translation can be a very valuable tool. Less good for poetry, but for weather, network security, how to fix a car, machine translation works quite well. Let's look quickly at some examples. If the article is very good, you'll probably find that professional translators have already done the work for you. But often you have to do the work yourself. There are many free services on the internet. Google, for instance, has a number of Asian languages. Foreign word at the bottom has enough languages that there are at least 1,600 language pairs. You could go between Finnish and Greek if you wanted to. Some of the commercial software can be expensive, but also can be very good. The bottom service has a very interesting way that it translates from one language to another. It has dropped hundreds and thousands of books and articles that have been professionally translated into its software. And it will grab examples from professionally translated manuscripts and spit them out. 
So essentially, the soft, the, the translation are should be from a human translator, but it's expensive. So here's a classic hacker piece smashing the stack for fun and profit. I dropped it into Babelfish to Russian, and then I'll bring it back to English and look at the differences. Up front, it was C programming, so you'll notice that in Russian, there is no C, so it translated as Che, which is a letter in Russian language. But when it comes back from Russian to English, it comes back as H, because it, again, it doesn't know where to go. It thinks that the logical conclusion in one direction is this letter, and when it comes back, it winds up being a different letter. It's just an example of there not essentially not existing examples for many things between languages. But overall, the job the software did, which is free, wasn't bad with an extremely difficult article to translate. Many resources exist that are good and have been made for you to use. Windows, for instance, with Cyrillic Russian writing is very good. Even in Notepad, in all of the Office tools, it's a matter of you know let alt left shift, and you go back and forth very easily between the two. Okay, so let's talk about a method for crossing international borders. Maybe your interest is in China, Korea, the Arab countries, or France. So I have come up with a short plan that involves four words that start with T. But with tribes, essentially, you know, if you're going to attack or defend from a foreign adversary, the more you know about their history, politics, and culture, and priorities, the better you will be able to understand the nature of the threat. Now, the terrain will look at internet infrastructure for this discipline. And the techniques will be hackers, hacker groups, malicious code. And the translation is important. Once you get that down, you'll find you can move much quickly and more easily between foreign countries and cultures. So, two seconds on Russia. 12th century, they're in Moscow, consolidate control. 17th century, take Siberia. 1917, the Communist Revolution. 1991, you'll find with Glasnost and Perestroika that this malicious code, among other things, starts leaving the former Soviet Union. 
currently in Russia, you have a re-centralization of political control under Vladimir Putin. And you also have probably the other big issue is the development of the economy, at the same time fighting a war in Chechnya. Okay, you're probably used to looking at political maps, but in our discipline, we need to look at the telecommunications and network infrastructure map. Now, up on the top is on the top left is Scandinavia, Saint Petersburg, where the two lines cross in the middle is Moscow. On the lower left side is Novorossiysk, and on the lower right side is Khabarovsk. Now this is the, the main trunk line through Russia, so if you send internet packets into Russia, you're probably going to cross these lines. So it says, So level of development of the internet. And you'll see the white square in the middle, this is almost completely undeveloped. The dark squares, highly developed. You find those are the population centers, not surprisingly. Some of the basics on Russian telecommunications. You'll need to know the internet country codes, sort of the number of hosts you're dealing with, what the telecommunications infrastructure looks like, and the types of connections that enter the country. Yet. So this is Russian cyberspace. This is the internet that exists within an environment like AOL or like in China. You know, it's the internet for Russians and by Russians and in Russian. And it includes all levels of internet users. Now in Russia, you'll see that the percentage of the population may be lower than in other countries. You see Sweden at the top, where almost everyone is connected. But because Russia is much larger and more populous than Sweden, you'll find that more Russians are connected than there are Swedes connected. Now, as the colors get less bright, you can see here a reflection of a real problem that the Russian government is dealing with today, which is the underdevelopment and worse, depopulation of the West. In other words, everyone is moving to Moscow and St. Petersburg. That's where the investment is, and that's where the future is for Russia. So Siberia is on somewhat difficult ground. Now, they say in England, every town, no matter how small, 
has a road pointed toward London. And in Europe, they say, all roads essentially lead to Rome. That was some time ago. But here, when you look at an infrastructure map in Russia, what you'll notice, just like on the map we looked at a while ago, you're probably going to have to go through Moscow to get somewhere else. Now, of course, this will facilitate collection and analysis on the part of the Russian government. But in many countries, it's just a fact of life. Now here I'll show you, you can see the basic outlines of what we saw before, the trunk lines that go from St. Petersburg all the way over to the Chinese border and down to the Middle East. But out in Siberia, you're not going to find landlines, but satellite communications. Now, for your research, you can rely on the work of others, but you can also do the work yourself. You can build these kind of maps yourself. And one tool you have is trace routes. So trace routes can determine connectivity between networks and between computers, and they tell you a lot about how networks are set up, where the slowdowns are, where the critical junctures are. In other words, if you want to go from Japan to Cameroon, you may have to go through South Africa, and there's no other option. So there's implications you know, in terms of the constraints on you sending an email to Cameroon. So traceroutes are a powerful tool. They can give you physical locations. They can give you ownership information of computers and networks, contact information, valuable tool for investigations, many sorts. Here's a tool called Visual Route, which will plot it graphically for you, tell you who owns the network, how long it takes to get from your computer to Moscow, and the path in between. You can write a short script yourself using host names or IP addresses that you can find on the internet without too much trouble. So using your own computer and your own script, you'll find, again, what we've seen already reflected in open source information collected, that you're going to have to go through these international conduits to Moscow, and then out all the way to the east, to the north, and to the west, you're going to touch Moscow first. The 
here's some of the major Russian IP ranges that you may come across. You may see some of these in your logs. And again, a lot of people have done work for you. So in the case you'd like to know which networks in Russia are most often abused by spammers, internet criminals, some of this work has been done for you. And it's a good place to start. I had a great hacking class a few years ago at which they told us the best place to start is the home page of your target. So in that spirit, we should look at what resources the Russian government offers us for information and further research. Here's the official Russian government site. Here's the only page within that site, within that domain, that I found that has a verbatim translation in English. It belongs, not surprisingly, to the Russian president. It took me a while to dig down to this site, which is only in Russian. It's the Russian cyber police website. But it's a very rich website if only you can bridge the language gap. So you'll see descriptions of what information security means in Russia, definitions that law enforcement uses there, a history of computer crime. You'll see information even on SORM, which is the system in Russia whereby the government collects data from ISPs for law enforcement purposes. Every ISP in Russia is required to plug a government box into the switch and bring back information for the Russian government. For information assurance folks, here are the definitions, strategies, and tactics being used in Russia today to include principles, objectives, definitions, and goals of Russian information assurance groups. So here are the definitions that would be used for carders, freakers, and crackers to law, Russian law enforcement. They have a great anthology in this website that will take you the history of cybercrime in Russia back to 1982. So I translated the 1982 version, and it was quite interesting. A woman who worked in a Russian ministry, who was a programmer, had access to code that divided up money between various regional 
political borders within Russia. Now, what she was able to do is every so often redirect money that eventually wound up in her pocket. So the salami technique, she was relying on every so often shaving off just a little bit of money. And they found, they said, it was actually just a couple of numbers within the code that she would swap, change back, and change again. So it would be really great to find this woman and give her a Black Hat DEFCON award 25 years later. Here are the regional offices for the Kiberpolizzi, the cyber police. Uh, these are the ones that just had links to their sites. So if you have an investigation, you're looking up an IP address, and it leads to a particular place within Russia. Not only could you contact the Russian national law enforcement, but you have an opportunity to contact a local law enforcement as well. There were 89 of these. And many of them had links and contact information. Here's the top Russian cyber cop who was kind enough to email me back for this presentation. So as usual, for Russia, very accomplished academically and professionally. You can see here his dissertation. You can see his professional interests and the work he's done. So here is some of his answers to my questions. You know, so how often do you get, you know, information requests from overseas and what do you do with them? And he says every day we get these requests and we're more than happy to work on international investigations. I asked him what prevents you know, better international cooperation. And he says primarily the difference in laws. So what's legal in my country may not be in your country and the definitions between the two make it extremely complicated. And I said, you know, how difficult is it to find a common format, you know, based on which we could have meaningful dialogue? And he says, well, in fact, we just met with the FBI, and we're more than happy to meet with international groups on this subject, but I feel like it should be a priority for us. And then I asked one of, one of the main issues, because all of this sounds good enough, but governments are very reluctant, in general, to share sensitive information with other governments. There is a fear of abuse of the information. There's a fear of the use of that information by governments to understand how the potential rival collects information, the capabilities, the methods that are used by a foreign country, and also to expose their own weaknesses. So he ends by saying, you know, this should not be a problem if we want to cooperate on international investigations. It's necessary for us to find a common format to share information. 
here's some questions I put together, many more than this, and you can email me if you like, but just questions I'd like to put together that maybe we could develop into a guide for international investigations that would be beneficial. We could potentially translate this into a number of languages. But they would be essential questions for an international investigator to answer in any investigation. Toward that end, I started making an English-Russian cyber dictionary. And I've given you one word to start with. I hope I found the right Japanese one. But it's some place to start to take your research in various directions. And a good place to go as well in research is the local information. In other words, in the States, I could search CNN.com for Russian hackers. But when you compare that to information that I could get from a Russian newspaper, Here is where you might find the best information. Here's just another example of resources that you'll find on the Russian side that will help you understand Russian cyber issues. Now Eugene Kaspersky, on the commercial side, you may have heard of. Kaspersky Labs has just incorporated in the United States. He is said to be the most hated man in Russia by hackers. And I was told that anybody of his level of success must have connections to law enforcement. But he makes antivirus and security suite software that is considered very good. But in our case, in the United States, it may be an issue of whether we will want to use Russian software. The final section in the talk looks at international law and some of the strategies being used by international investigators to overcome the shortcomings in international law. You will find that many resources exist, especially in countries like the United Kingdom, where you can begin. Here are some of the links I have found in the UK that would aid 
the investigator. But many more countries are not quite there yet. And you'll find that international law has many shortcomings. It's clearly ill-suited for cybercrime. The nature of networks are borderless. And there's difficulty with sharing information. It's politically difficult to extradite criminals to a foreign country almost in every case. So some examples of what corporations are doing in the face of cybercrime include offering money. Evidently, Microsoft has paid money for information related to hacks of Microsoft and Microsoft products. But they keep this relatively quiet as you can imagine. The gaming company Valve, creator of Half-Life, had its source code stolen for Half-Life 2. So this was an interesting tactic they used. They asked the game players for support. And there was enough fans of Half-Life who, for however they got the information, were able to provide that information that led to an arrest. So across borders, it's impossible to interview every single traveler. It is absolutely impossible to look at all foreign network traffic that crosses your border. A few simple precautions will give you some anonymity on the internet. And the problem for investigations involves the existence of log data and the expertise to understand it quite apart from the difficulties of politics, language, and culture. Now, evidence that's digital in nature is time-sensitive. The fact that it can be erased and the time it takes to cross borders mean that it's very difficult to prosecute international cybercrime. In the U.S. case, 
if someone routed their activity through China and Iran, you can imagine the difficulty that an investigator ha would have in obtaining the evidence. So we're left with creative solutions. In 2000, the FBI was following hacker activity from Russia. They tried and failed to get the cooperation they were looking for. Their own research led to an identification of a suspect in Russia. They invited this suspect and a colleague to the United States, posing as a corporate corporation for interviews. They asked them for a demonstration of ha hacking skill. Well, they were keystroke logging the whole time. Immediately following the interview, there was an arrest made, and they went to Russia and they pulled down evidence. Now the Russians weren't very happy about this, and they filed an international complaint versus the United States. But the court in the United States ruled that the FBI was entirely justified in what it did. So remote search and seizure of computers and networks is a hot topic. And whether it's consistent with international law is up for debate. There are many ways that we collect information on foreign countries. many of which the other country is not happy about, but can do little to stop. Now, network reconnaissance, because it involves no physical entry or invasion of a foreign country, may be closer to surveillance from an aircraft or a satellite or even reading the newspapers or interviewing citizens of a foreign country for legal argument. The European Cybercrime Convention is the biggest current initiative. 
the goal is a worldwide capability to investigate cybercrime. But the obstacles are not easy to overcome. Can you require ISPs to collect a lot of data about the clients? Does that seem to be a presumption of guilt over innocence? Now, most countries will allow, in no case, a foreign country onto its networks without permission. And indeed, the European Cybercrime Convention requires universal consent. which may lead to essential safe havens for hackers in parts of the world. And in any case, the countries that do participate all require coordination and cooperation and not access to networks on an automatic basis. So I think you need three things to cooperate in the future on a law enforcement basis. You need a technological capability to do so. You need the authority legally. And perhaps most important for the purposes of this discussion is a willingness to cooperate, which as we've seen is difficult in many cases to acquire. And even if you have a willingness to cooperate, underneath that go language, culture, and politics that are major obstacles as well. And the final note is just the, a story. They tried to, in the United Kingdom, trace back some internet activity, malicious, in the last few months. Now, from the United Kingdom perspective, they called the computer emergency response team in China. And all they could get was one person on the line. And they only spoke Chinese. So in the UK, they had to find somebody who could speak with this person on the telephone. But it was an interesting case. They said once they finally got their message across to the Chinese, the activity stopped immediately. So, especially with Russia, it could be a case the technological capability is there. You just need the willingness and the implementation piece to work out for a successful investigation. So I thank you for your attention, and I appreciate your ability, uh, the opportunity to come speak with you. Uh, at this time, we'd like to... Do you have any questions?
You might have. I have. I have two uh, uh, books that my cousin wrote uh, that are entitled Making Out in Japanese that he signed. I think it's a classic in the field. It's already 20 years old and has gone through many, uh, uh, many reprints. Let me know. Uh, I was going to offer them for questions. Uh, so if you are a student of Japanese and English language and would like that uh, as uh, for a question, I'd be happy to give that to you. Uh, did you follow the involvement of Russians in skimming operations of ATMs by modifying the ATM code? that resulted in a criminal trial in New York about four years ago. I'm not familiar with that story. Apparently some between 50 and 100 ATMs had modified code and wireless um, installed so that they would broadcast encrypted debit cards and pins. Is that right? Yes, and the Secret Service in the U.S. has still not found all of them. That is a terrific story, but again, you know, the... You know, the limit to a cyber attack, what is it? Your imagination, right? And this is a case that's terrific. And there was, there was another interesting case in Southern California where uh, Armenian organized crime gangs uh, tried to convince gas station owners to put in specially hacked uh, pin pads for debit cards at ARCO stations. That got a lot of publicity about five years ago also. In that's the US. But there seems to be Russian organized crime involvement in these cases heavily in the U.S. That is amazing. Yeah, so, you know, so e even abroad, that kind of activity, uh, you know, taking place where they would get into the firmware of a, you know, of a, uh, of a piece of hardware you know, and modify it to send encrypted messages wirelessly to criminals in New York City is astounding. Phenomenal. I'm uh, in the Microsoft Security Response Center and work alongside our Internet Crime Investigations team. In the presentation, you mentioned our bounty program and that it's not well publicized. That's certainly unintentional. Uh, we would much rather pay the money and get the information to catch the criminals uh, than to save the money. So we do have a web page on that. And if anybody uh, wants more information on that, uh, please see me or just email secure at Microsoft.com and we'll make sure that information gets to the right place. Terrific. Thank you so much for that information. Uh, that's good stuff because, I, you know, reading that, and I think, you know, those are, that wasn't necessarily my thoughts, but I think I read that it was, you know, on the, on the sly, that sort of thing. But that's not the case. Terrific. So, a word from, from, uh, from Microsoft. ハッカーの文化の中では言語がかなり特殊だと思います。例えばアメリカ人のハッカー文化の中の英語っていうのは辞書にも載ってないですし、我々は訳すことができない。それから日本の中のハッカーの文化っていうのも変な言葉を使っ
part of this involved uh, a couple of interviews. And you're absolutely right. The question was, there's so much specialized language, uh, and it changes so often. Like, I also study French language, and the French slang would be a lifetime pursuit in and of itself uh, if you w wanted to make it your expertise. In this case, the... Some of the information, some of, I think the best information that I got for the presentation was from interviews. So the, the only way to get good information sometimes is to ask somebody who is a Russian hacker. I had a terrific interview. Actually, I was in Europe last year and happened to meet these guys. Um, it was, it was a, a bit of luck that they were all really into hacking and they were Russian um, and they just they provided me terrific information. Uh, but I don't think I could have gotten anywhere else. I really don't. You have to get it, I guess, in certain cases from from the mouth of those you know who are, you know who live that life. I would think. So, is it, does that answer your question? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so, Kenneth, how did you get on the JFK assassination review board? Ah, uh, well, you know, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't no, want... Actually, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I might ask you that question later, just, just briefly, because I think we're almost out of time. Um, the FBI sting, um, that would have been a perfect opportunity for these countries to work in unison. So, in your opinion, it may be a difficult question to answer, why do you believe the Russian authorities didn't cooperate, wasn't specific to that case, and uh, do you believe it's changing? That is a very good question, and, and that may be the question that 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 uh, you know is most pertinent. Um, given the fact, and this has been widely publicized, and like I, I showed on this on the, the Russian government slide again, it's only in Russian, but but they do talk about it. The 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 fact that Russian ISPs are all connected to Russian law enforcement. And the fact that the political culture in Russia and the Soviet Union and the, the history there would indicate that there is a lot of government control. Um, and even in Western Europe, I've found that for investigations, I mean, there's, there's a culture, not so much in the United States. In the United States, everybody's... Uh, uh, um, afraid of government authority and so the government I think has some limitations where in Western Europe you'll find that they kind of know who connected when and did what on the net I found in Russia I would think it would be more so um, I, the, te the technical capability is there we know that all the ISPs have to plug in the government box into the switch um, I think it only comes down to willingness to cooperate and in that case it's, it's a funny case because um, I don't know the you know the entirety of why the Russians would have declined to work with the FBI, but in that case, at least on the most of that information I got from the FBI website, which has a lot of good stuff on this story, um, they claim that they just were not getting the cooperation from the Russians. Now, what exactly that entailed may only be internal to the FBI and the FSB. Um, but I know from from uh, some current experience that you know the, the United States, for instance, um, will. 
is hesitant to share information regarding investigations with, with any foreign country just because there's a, a natural built-in fear of, of, of abuse, you know, or of, you're just not quite sure where it's going and, and what they're going to do with it. It's tough. I, I think there's, there's a natural sort of... Uh, um, there's, the willingness is not there necessarily to cooperate up front. So well, in the Russian case, I think the capability has got to be there. It's just a matter of, 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 of the cooperation taking place. Um, it's tough, you know, and then, you know, also the government level is concerned about espionage and na nation state hacking. And, you know, uh, I think there's some assumption that if it's at that level, you're never going to get cooperation, right? Uh, but for, for, for cybercrime, I don't see why we couldn't have some reliable connections, a, a common format with which to share data. It just seems like that should be there. Um, but again, I think it's a case of technology having, le having leaped ahead of international law, having leaped ahead of, uh, just like I mentioned, the whole revolution in military affairs, I don't think is understood by national leadership uh, at all. It's a case of you know technology moving faster than other cultures. Hi. Uh, I can share my experience. Actually, I was living 10 years in Russia and mm -hmm. doing security stuff. Mm -hmm. And I guess, yeah. And I guess the problem there is that um, they are still fearing to be surrounded by enemies. Mm -hmm. And this is coming from the Soviet heritage. Mm -hmm. And it will take a long time to get away with this. And. Uh, if you are a foreigner, for example, you try to work there in the security field, you can be as good as you can, but uh, you won't succeed because you're not Russian. You must be FSB compliant, which means carrying the right passport. So it's not only a matter of official um, relationship between states, but also by local culture. Right. But, yeah, that is uh, a, a very good point. Um, you know, and again, it may go back to, you know, culture, politics, and language, and, and where you're born, and what group you associate with. But like I said, even on the United States side, I think there is a hesitancy to, to cross international borders. Um, and, and if we receive requests from abroad, I think there would be a, 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 a an built-in sort of reticence to share information. Um, you know, you have to see some benefit in it. Uh, in extradition um, and prosecution across international borders is, is difficult enough, and when you include past political tension, language problems, um, you know, it's much, it gets much more difficult. Um, you know, but again, in Russia, yeah, you, you, they may be at a stage now where, uh, you know, it's, it's closed still if you're not sort of in the right groups and you're not Russian. Okay, well, I hate to interrupt, but we are out of time, and I'm sure everyone's getting hungry. Uh, I'd like to thank Ken for such a comprehensive presentation. Thank you. Lunch will be served uh, for an hour starting